Good morning, everyone. It's, uh, it's really good to be here this morning. Uh, I'm excited to be here. I didn't get to speak to you last week, so it's great to be back. A bit later in the service, we're going to welcome Michelle and Phil and Lisa into membership. We're going to wait until our kids are in to do that, so I'm really looking forward to that. I don't know what you expected when you woke up this morning and got in the car and headed to church. But how good is it to be present together as God's people and worship Him? Thanks, Beck and the band. I really appreciate you leading us and uh, helping us to engage with the Spirit of God. It is so good to be God's people and gather together to worship Him. So uh, it's great to be here. It's great to have you here this morning. If you're a visitor here this morning, welcome. It's great to have you here. Um, we are all part of God's family, and anyone who uh, comes into this place is welcome and invited to be a part of what we're doing here. So it's good to have you here. Can I, can I make a deal with you this morning? <laughs> uh, no deal with Lynn. It's <laughs> not unusual. <laughs> That's all past money. <laughs> no. Oh. So, so the deal is this. We're starting a new series this morning, and I've, I've made a decision that I'm going to stop halfway. So the book of Isaiah is in two parts. The first part is before the exile and before the destruction of Jerusalem. And the second part is after that, and it's speaking to the people who have been humbled. So I'm only going to do the first part this morning. I'm not telling the whole story. So you have to come back next week. If you want to know the full gospel, the full message of God, we're only going to do half. And it pains me to do this. But I think it's really important. It's like... You know, a movie that's in two parts. You've got to see the second part to make sense of the first. And if you don't see the first part, it's going to be a pretty depressing movie. <laughs> so, that's the deal. Um, next week, actually, um, it won't just be me speaking to you. God willing, John Hayward is going to join us, and we're going to be co preaching this passage. I'm really looking forward to that. But let me start this morning by asking you a tricky question, maybe. It's this. What is the starting point for your theology? Let me put it this way. When you start to think about God, um, what is the first step that you take? Where, where do you begin? Do you start with philosophy and first principles? Are you wired up that kind of way? Um, thinking about knowledge and how we know things and what the meaning of life is. Maybe you start with experience, an experience of God that you've had, that that is your starting point for everything else that comes after that. Maybe you start with God's character, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence. Um, don't think I'm missing any omnis. <laughs> There's not a right single answer on that. We have to start somewhere. Uh, for me, I tend to start in history and with the person of Jesus, and I reckon that's a good place to start. But it isn't the only place. There are many places where your theology can start, but where you start matters. Where you start makes a difference. It has its strengths, 
but also has its weaknesses. When, when you start with philosophy, you will have a very ordered and complete, correct theology. But you may really struggle to encounter God as personal and active. When you start with experience, you have a vibrant sense of God. You have this expectation of God is present and He's at work. But you often really struggle when things are difficult or don't quite match up to what you hope. Or God doesn't behave the way that you'd like Him to. When you start with history, like I do, there's this sense of intimacy with God's presence and His grace. It's a strong sense of God's graciousness to us throughout his story. But we often miss his glory and holiness and otherness. Wherever you start, there's trade-offs. I, I once heard theology described as trying to make a portrait of a multi-dimensional being. So you're painting a two-dimensional painting of God, and you can do an amazing painting, but it's never going to fully capture the wholeness, the fullness of God. Which is why the Bible is such a gift. Because in the Bible, we don't have one portrait of God. We have 66 books that all tell us about the person of God and give us this rounded picture who God is. We have philosophy and history and law and poetry and all of these point to God from a different direction but all give honour and help us to understand the fullness of who the living God is. When we pay attention to the spectrum of scripture we can encounter God in his fullness and maybe deal with some of those weaknesses of our starting point as we hear and encounter a different perspective on who God is, we can be stretched. And probably one of the books that stretches me the most, I don't know if it's the same for you, is the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament prophets. Uh, I grew up in a Church of Christ church, and there's a few of you around who know the Church of Christ great on the New Testament. They really struggled with the Old Testament. They didn't know what to do with it. Because it was this picture of God that came from a different perspective. Let me, let me read to you how the book of Isaiah starts. This is Isaiah's foundational experience, the starting point for his theology. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with the two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. This morning, we're looking at the holiness of God and how we respond. And I'm nervous to talk to you about this. It is a great responsibility to declare the holiness of God. So I'm just going to pray 
before I get into the bulk of my message, I just ask that I might do this justice. And that you might hear it well. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we have the privilege of coming to you as Father and asking and knowing that you respond. And this morning we recognize that that is an incredible that not only are you Father, but you are the Lord Almighty, high above heaven and earth. We pray that we might have some sense of that, that we might be stretched, that we might recognize your holiness and your goodness. I pray that as I speak, I will speak the truth of your word from a perspective that stretches me. I pray that I might do justice, and I pray that as we gather here this morning, we might hear you afresh. We might be reminded or uh, hear anew of your character, your awesomeness, and your power. Amen. So when you talk about starting points for theology, this is a pretty uh, impactful one for Isaiah. Uh, his understanding starts with the fact that God is holy, holy, holy. So holy that the earth isn't big enough to contain his glory. These are, these are kind of uh, words that are meant to spurn our imagination a little bit. Um, help us to comprehend something that's beyond comprehension, if you will. That God's holiness is beyond something that we could comprehend or capture or imagine. In, in English, we don't have particularly good language for holiness. That's part of the struggle in talking to you this morning. So we don't have the vocabulary for it. I, um, I did a bit of research this week, and holiness, holy, is the 2,254th most used English word in common usage at the moment. It's not a word that we're particularly familiar with. Uh, in English, holiness, holy, carries this idea of goodness, um, that there is something pure and right. And that's there in the Hebrew biblical usage of the word, but the Hebrew is much more focused on this idea of separation. Uh, it's the word kadosh, which means to cut. Sarah could probably say the word better than I could. Oh, she's looking it up. There you go. Am I right? Hey. Um, so the root word for holiness means to cut off or separate. Uh, holiness is getting at this idea that God is different. He is separate. He is in a class of his own. He is different to anything that exists, has existed or will exist. God is high and exalted. He is magnificent, above separate, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 55 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God is in a class of his own. Exodus asks, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? 
And there's an answer in Samuel that says, There is no one like the Lord. For there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. God is holy. It's not just an aspect of what he does. It's not just an incidental. It's at the essence of God's nature. He is holy, pure, separate, in a class of his own. Everything he thinks, desires, speaks and does is holy in every way. He is the definition of holiness. He is holy in justice, holy in love, holy in mercy, holy in power, holy in sovereignty, holy in wisdom, holy in patience, holy in anger, holy in grace, holy in faithfulness, holy in compassion, holy is his name. So the Ten Commandments, the laws that are governing God's people, the way he calls people to respond to him, start by giving us a command to recognise God's holiness. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth below, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guilty who misuses his name. The Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. When the disciples said, teach us how to pray, Jesus said, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be holy and kept holy. In other words, our Father, who is separate, and above, may your holiness be recognised in the world and your kingdom come. It's, I don't think it's coincidence. Let me rephrase that. The Lord's Prayer is, I think it's 66 words, the most beautiful and considered words ever spoken. And it's no coincidence that the prayer for God's name to be hallowed is linked with the idea of his kingdom coming. When we recognise God's holiness, as we acknowledge it and as we respond to it and live it out, his kingdom comes on earth. His kingdom can't come until we honour and respond to the holiness of God. As we do that, his glory and his will and his holy kingdom comes upon the earth. As I was um, preparing for the sermon, I came across a great analogy for God's holiness this week. It's the image of the sun. So our sun is unique in the solar system, perhaps not in the galaxy, perhaps not in the universe, but in the solar system. 
It's unique. It's powerful. It's at the center. It radiates light. Life on this planet is only possible because of the sun. It gives us life. But it is dangerous. You don't want to get too close to the sun. Um, same is true of God's holiness. By his light we see light. His holy presence and power gives life to the whole of creation. But it is dangerous if you get too close. It attracts us, but there is something that repels us and frightens us as well about the holiness of God. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the holy God. Uh, I think about times when I personally have experienced the holy presence of God. Maybe you can think about a time in your life when you've encountered that. For me, it took my breath away. There's this sense of God's purity, this incredible wisdom and love, but there's this overwhelming sense of power. And this is, you don't want to mess with God. You, you can't mess with God. And that is a terrifying thing to recognize that God deals straight. Uh, when Moses has to see God's glory, maybe you know the story in Exodus. The Lord said, I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But you cannot see my face, for no one may see my face and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on the rock. When my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I'll remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. That is one of the strangest, uh, most beautiful encounters with God that we have recorded. So Moses boldly saying, before I tell your people about your commands, let me have an experience of seeing you face to face. And God says, no, you can't see my face. That would be too overwhelming for you. I'll let you see my back as I pass by. And when Moses came down the hill, people couldn't look at him. Because that experience with the glory of God's back has so transformed him that he himself was radiating some of the glory of God. The hope that the book of Isaiah talks about is this. It's the hope that God's glory will once again come and be seen in his people. Uh, in Isaiah 24, he talks about this. He says, The moon will be dismayed, the sun ashamed, for the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders with great glory. Isaiah has this encounter with the glory of God and then this promise of hope. God's glory will again be seen in his people. That's a starting point. 
And do you know what Isaiah's response is? Let me read to you. The seraphs were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the sound of their voices, the doorposts, the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. What's Isaiah's response? It's fear and shame. I don't belong here. Woe to me that I am in this place. It's a terrifying thing to come into the presence of the holy living God. It's like flying too close to the sun. God's holiness radiates out his goodness and his love and his power but it simultaneously exposes our sin and our shame. So Isaiah falls to his knees and says, I don't belong here. Um, when the Bible uses the language of fearing God, that's what it's describing. The terrifying experience of having your whole life laid bare before the judge of heaven and earth, before the Holy One whom we are called to reflect. Uh, Isaiah 8 um, kind of discusses this a little bit. It says, The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place, both for Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They'll fall and be broken. They'll be snared and captured. It's that experience of living in the dark and then having a thousand spotlights going on. That's the experience of Isaiah. And when you're in that place, how can darkness stand? How can we who've lived so long in the dark, so long that it's soaked into our pores, how can we stand in a light like that? John, in his Gospel, talked about the presence of Jesus in the world, and he said, uh, oh, he said, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Isaiah is saying about Jerusalem, about himself, saying, woes me, I've seen the living God. Um, can I go back one side to the sorry, I'm just not there. Um, Jerusalem staggers. Judah is fallen. Their words and deeds are against the law, defying his glorious presence. So God shows up in the temple amongst the people that are defying God's glory and presence, that don't live as God's holy people that don't worship and honour him as holy, that worship so many other things. That's the problem that Isaiah gets caught up in. It's like, we don't belong. God, we don't belong with your holiness. We have this hope that your presence will fill Jerusalem. But right now, 
If you were to build Jerusalem, we would stagger and be ruined. Because we're not your people. We don't follow you. We don't honor you. We are unholy. We can't stand before your life. That's the problem. It's not a problem on God's side of the equation. God isn't petty. He doesn't look for adulation and honour for his sake. He's not saying, gee, like I do, gee guys, I'm so awesome and I just need you to big up me and make me feel good. He's not saying that. God is saying he's passionate about wholeness for creation's sake, for our sake. God is jealous for his people, positively jealous. God loves his creation. He loves his people. He made them in his image and he's zealous to protect the relationship that he has with them. Say, so you were created to live in my holiness and be my holy people. And I will protect that and chase after that. The glory and holiness of God is meant to fill the earth as water fills the seas. It's meant to be reflected in his creation, particularly in the human beings he's created in his image. And sin breaks that. It breaks that relationship. Instead of having our, um, God as the highest in our life, we put other things, ourselves, sin, the things we desire. Sin transforms wholeness something that is good and powerful and life-giving into judgment. Holiness is experienced as condemnation. The power of God's presence becomes unbearable because we have worshipped other things. This is the, the judgment that Isaiah talks about of God's people. The Lord takes his place in court. He rises to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and the leaders of the people. It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder of the poor is, of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. The Lord says, the women of Zion are haughty. Walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, strutting along with swaying hips, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. Therefore, the Lord will bring sores on the heads of the women of Zion. The Lord will make their scalps hold. In that day, the Lord will snatch away their finery. The bangles. <laughs> John and I are okay. <laughs> Sashes, the perfume bottles and charms, the signet rings and nose rings. Sorry, really. Yeah. The fine robes and the capes and cloaks, the purses and mirrors, and the linen garments and tiaras and shawls. 
Placing other things before God is the root of sin. It destroys goodness and people and causes us to be led astray into sin. Dressing well is not a sin. Um, it's not one I'm in danger of committing, <laughs> but um, dressing well is not a sin. But placing other things above God is. And uh, as funny as this passage is, I feel that it speaks into the time in which we're in, where we place so many things and are obsessed with appearance and self and how we look. I am, um, when I was looking up words uh, to find out what I was one of the words I put in was I and me. And you can get a graph on the usage of those words that time. Do you know what happens to the words I and me? It's, it kind of slowly declines till about the year 2000. And then it hockey sticks. And the, word, the usage of the word I and me just goes and skyrockets. It's like Bitcoin. It's incredible how much it goes up. No, it hasn't crashed yet. We are like sheep who have gone astray. We have put our hope and our glory in things other than God. It doesn't immediately lead to sin, but the flow-on effects are that we are off kilter and we start to take more than we should and we impress people who are made in God's image to raise ourselves up. And it ends in oppression, darkness, and judgment. And God's plan is to bring us back. That his glory would fill the earth. For this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I will not accuse them forever. Nor will I always be angry, for then they would faint away because of me, the very people I've created. I was enraged by their sinful grief. I punished them and hid my face in anger. Yet they kept on in their ways. I've seen their ways, but I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to Israel's mourners. Creating praise on their lips. Peace. Peace to those far and near, says the Lord Almighty, and I will heal them. Isaiah is a book of two halves. You can't get to the second half, the restoration and the healing, before you get to deal with the first half. The problem, the brokenness. God's people have rejected his holiness. He longs to fill the earth as waters fill the sea for his presence to come. But we have fallen way short of it. Isaiah declares the holiness of God and how it has been rejected by Israel, by humanity. It's a temptation that is natural to all of us. For me, Many of the words of Isaiah hit too close to home. 
Maybe not about the anklets, but about the things that I put my hope and my trust in. Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you should be holy, for I am holy. I know I fall just disastrously short of the holiness of God. I know that I still place my hope and my worship in things that are not God and do not satisfy. I know I try and glorify myself and my wants. I live amongst the people of unclean lips and I have unclean lips. And yet, here we are this morning to worship God, the Holy One of Israel, the Lord Almighty. And we're commanded to give glory to his name. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families and nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Um, I know that it's impossible for me to do that in my own strength. To ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. I'm so thankful that through Jesus Christ we have the gift of the Holy Spirit who teaches us how to live as God told you, who leads us in worship and response to him. But I also know that I'm the problem. To my side of the equation that falls short, my choices, my priorities, what I give worship, what I worship, that I still do not give to the Lord the glory Jesus name. That's the problem. We're going to stop here. Our kids are coming back in. They can come in. Um, uh, before we get to the good news, we're going to stop and recognise the holiness of God. And we're going to um, sit with the reality of who we are, that we have fallen short of this world. And uh, we're going to do that by spending some time in confession. So I'm going to lead you in a time of confession. It, it pains me a little bit to do this, but I think it is something that we as God's people need to come back to and remember. I'd much rather lead you in communion and tell you that Jesus has forgiven your sins, which he has. But before we get to that, we need to acknowledge God's glory, His high calling, and how we reject Him. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Our kids can come in. I'm going to have um, some words on the screen. Can I invite you to stand?
the words in bold, I invite you to share. They're the same the whole way through. And then I'm going to lead you in the Anglican prayer of confession from the common prayer I think it's an incredible reminder of who we are. Great words that are written. So let me lead us through this time of confession. If there's something in particular that you are carrying and aware, aware that this is a place where I put my hope in things other than God, this is a place where I reject it. Bring that with you as we spend time confessing together. May you confess it in your heart today. So let's um, confess together. God our Father, we come to you in sorry for our sins, for turning away from you and ignoring your will for our lives. Father, forgive us. Save and help us. For behaving just as we wish without thinking of you, Father, forgive us. Say us. Failing by what we do and think and say. Father, forgive us. Say us and help us. For letting ourselves be drawn away from you by temptations in the world about us. Father, forgive us. Say us and help us. For living as if you were ashamed to belong to your son. Father, forgive us. Save us and help us. We'll save us. Almighty and most merciful God, we have fallen astray from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone what we ought to have done, and we have done what we ought not to have done. And there is no help in us. Yet, good Lord, have mercy on us. Restore those who are present, according to your promises declared to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. And grant the merciful Father for his sake, that we may live a godly, righteous, and obedient life to the glory.